Almighty God, as we stand gazing, as it were, at our ascended Lord, we believe that one day every challenge to his rule will finally be crushed and his kingdom will fully come to earth. And to that we say, come, Lord Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ, who reigns now with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Recently, I had a, a meal with a couple of non-Christian friends, and the discussion moved along, and I would say even spiraled, as is often the case, toward the current political climate in our city and state. And uh, as I normally do, I kind of just listen respectfully, and while they went back and forth, and uh, they talked about the current state of the affairs, and and when one of them finally, after they had gone back and forth for a while, looked at me and said, So, are you a Republican or a Democrat? <laughs> uh, my effort to explain how I can rationally be neither uh, fell on deaf ears, I'm afraid. And they just kept pressing and they kept pushing me. And I finally... Uh, was a little exasperated, so I decided to pull the plug on the conversation, and I said, look guys, I don't know what to tell you other than I belong to another world and another kingdom altogether. Can you imagine how that went? It was a bit like the moment when, uh, and this has happened a lot over the years, when strangers would ask me what I do for a living, and I say, I'm a pastor. <laughs> and the blood rushes, you know, just runs away from their face and they kind of stand here and do this. And they, I can see their minds spinning. They're wondering, what have I said in the last two minutes? Have I been swearing? Have I, do I need to ask forgiveness for something? They don't get me. They don't get me because I'm living in a different narrative like you. I live in a different story. Their story tells them that we've all appeared out of the blue, quite by chance or by some other power, unknown force, and that our future is just emptiness, oblivion. As the Germans call it, das Nichtige, nothingness. Their story tells us that along the way on this accidental journey, our significance is bound up with how much we make of our own lives and how deeply connected we are to the powerful stories around us. So the more connected and the more deeply connected we are to those movements and stories, the greater significance in our lives. And that's the way a lot of people live. They especially live that way when they're younger. It's fascinating to me, I have to say, that a given 18 to 34 year old can express their disdain for white middle-class Christian preachers, while at the same time, by means of our modern media, that same person can become a preacher who is far more dogmatic and caustic and courageous than I ever dared to be. I don't have that much courage, frankly. It's an amazing phenomenon. It unveils a profound truth. Each of us wants needs a story that's powerful enough to give us meaning to make our lives count. 
So it's not the preaching by the strange middle-aged white men that's distasteful. It's not ethics, really, as a category that's off-putting for so many people. It's not the bizarre rituals of eating and drinking and relying on a text as guide in our lives that is strange for others. I mean, who doesn't do all of those things in a variety of ways? We are all doing that, Christian or not. Rather, it's this particular story. It's this story, the one of Jesus of Nazareth who lived 2,000 years ago. That's the one that we're told can't be a reasonable option. That's the reason the blood drains out of the face of people who hear I'm a pastor with that man, Jesus. This story tells us something else. This narrative is different. It tells us that there is someone who gives us life and establishes our days. And then it tells us, in a twist for the ages, the one who is powerful enough to give us life stepped into our space and time-bound world. God was born as a baby. He lived like no one else has ever lived. He taught what no one else has ever taught, and we killed him for it. And who would have thought that God could die? I mean, if we just stopped there, that ought to captivate everyone's imaginations, just that alone. But this God goes further, goes further than merely dying. Not only is he able to die, all of his power and will were directed right at that event, that cross event. A slave's death was his aim. So after Good Friday, on Holy Saturday, we did this a few weeks ago, we huddled in the corner rooms with the disciples, wondering what this death of this man meant. I mean, if he has pursued the death of a slave, is he a fraud? Did he deserve it? Have we thrown away our lives for someone that's mocked by governments and cultural icons? And that had to have been running through the disciples' minds on Holy Saturday. And maybe that's where you are right now. Maybe you're on Saturday. And maybe you come in here most Sundays, and as we sing and read and pray and eat and drink, maybe you find your place in this story to be a real struggle. How do I fit in? Maybe you're a young person, and you've been raised in a culture around here that makes Sundays feel weird to you. Like you're out of step with the real world. Like something's missing and everyone here is in on the joke. And that's true for some people. Whether you come to church each Sunday or whether you don't, some of us are stuck on Saturday and we're yet to step into Sunday. But on Sunday, in resurrection, God invites us to realize our salvation in Christ and to begin to live fully human lives. But if we stopped there, we'd miss a key piece of our story. Easter is not the end of the surprising nature of this Jesus story. It takes twists and turns we wouldn't write or expect. 
Forty days after Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended back to the Father. He left. Unbelievable. I mean, if it wasn't strange enough, all the teaching he gave us, that he barely explained, then he went to a cross of all things, next to resurrection, okay, we've got some hope here, things are turning around, but now, gone. It certainly wasn't what his disciples anticipated because you heard in our reading from Acts 1, Lord, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom? I mean, things are looking up again. We were depressed on Friday. I have a glimmer of hope now. Are we going to Herod and Pilate now? Lord, is it now that we will crush our enemies and establish our kingdom? I mean, I can, when they ask the question, I can just imagine their giddy anticipation of what he would say. Finally, our political party wins. Finally, after millennia of being on the losing end of the power spectrum, this thing is turning around. Finally, my friends won't look at me sideways when I tell them I'm not a Democrat or a Republican. Finally. Can you feel that? Finally, with the right person in the White House, and the right judges on the court, and the right mayor, and governor, and city council, finally the world will be safe, secure, saved. And with all of that on the disciples' lips, as they walked along with Jesus on that beautiful day, in the blink of an eye, gone. Deflated can barely describe the sensation, surely. There they were, just staring into the sky with jaws dropped, unable to speak. God had to send two angels to move them along and say, go, get, go on, go on home. Why are you staring? This had to have been the worst of all possible plot twists. The savior of the world, finally. But then he leaves before the world is saved? No wonder people find our story strange. What kind of story is this? St. John records something very interesting from Jesus before his crucifixion. You can find it in his gospel. He said this to his disciples. It is better for you that I go away. Do you remember that? It's better. This was the best of all possible plot twists according to Jesus. And the fact that it was better is the twist within the twist which makes it a story for the agents and makes our lives matter. The ascension of Jesus into his unseen place is why this story must become our story. Now, there are a lot of reasons for that. This morning, only one, okay? In a couple of weeks after I return from the East Coast, we'll dabble in one or two more at Pentecost. But today, only one. How could it possibly be that his departure 
is the reason we are compelled and brought into this story. The reason I'll share this morning is because this event was his ascent to his kingly throne. When you think of the king's palace or the castle in ancient and medieval societies, where was it typically located? It was located at the highest point of the city or the land. You can still see this, especially around Europe, the city we lived in for almost 10 years, Edinburgh, Scotland. The castle is the prominent location in the city up on the castle hill. And the palace in Edinburgh is down the hill at the bottom away from the castle. So the castle, that fortress where the king ruled and reigned or the queen was there in the center of the city, highest point of the city. It was an elevated position, place of protection and of honor. It was the place where the king could oversee the kingdom and the people would also be reminded who their king was as they passed near that palace, that king, that castle. In Israel's case though, what stood on the mount overlooking the people? That's not a rhetorical question. The temple. The temple. The temple was the place where their true king dwelt. They had other kings, King David, King Saul, and on and on. But those kings never supplanted the ultimate king who was in the temple. In the Psalms, you'll often see headings in your Bible called a Psalm of Ascent. And the Psalm of Ascent were... These psalms were sung as they, the people, ascended the Temple Mount to worship God. And in those psalms, you'll often find verses like, I lift up my eyes to you, O God, enthroned in the heaven, Psalm 123, 1. And then Psalm 47, which we read together this morning, talked about God ascending to his place of power and reigning over the people. And then when a king would go out to battle and would conquer his enemies and return home, the word would spread to the people who were in the walled city long before the king and his armies arrived. And they would leave the confines of the walled city. They would go out to meet the king and they would uh, together ascend and march with the king all the way to his throne rejoicing that he had conquered his foes, and now he was back in his rightful place. And incidentally, in Thessalonians, Paul picks up this imagery when he talks about Jesus' return, that we will meet him in the air, and then Jesus will be enthroned permanently after his second return. So, the ascension is a signal to us that the king has accomplished his mission. He's defeated his foes and the foes of his people, his children. And he's going to sit on his throne to rule his kingdom. And so it really is better that Jesus left. Because now the king and his people have no rivals. Can you imagine a better story? Can you imagine a better one out there? Where the one, where the hero beats death, our ultimate enemy, and is now in charge. And yet, it feels to me like so many of us 
struggle to buy into that fully. That Jesus is an actual king right now. I say that because think about what happens to us when the screws get tightened on our lives. It could be pressures from people at school who are shaming us, marginalizing us. Might be inflation, job loss, maybe a broken relationship in our family, maybe medical concerns that won't go away. See, when the walls feel like they are closing in on us, what happens? What happens to our sleep and our nerves and our patience with people around us? It kind of reveals something about where our heart is, doesn't it? Maybe our confidence is somewhere else. Maybe our confidence in having the good life is in other places other than in the ascended, ruling King Jesus. This might not be true for you. Um, at times, I do fear that my trust is in the ever-expanding exercise of this country's military power, the likes of which this world has never seen. Two people very close to me are in the Marine Corps. When they describe the weapons they use and the power that just one military branch of our country possesses, I have to be honest with you, in spite of my commitment to nonviolence, I get an adrenaline rush when I hear talk of that kind of power. I fear that at times I trust more in drones and cruise missiles than I do in the living and reigning king over death and hell. Jesus of Nazareth, this ancient male Jew who lived briefly, died violently, and rose unexpectedly, ascended to the throne of God. And he has done what no stinger or javelin missile could ever do. He has beaten death. He has defeated your foes. And he has taken place on the throne that rules heaven and earth. Why would we bother with anything else? Why would we ever believe military might can do anything for us? I mean, haven't we tried that? They hit us, we hit them. Violence is perpetuated, violence upon violence, and yet, we give it our undying allegiance. Jesus has ascended, so Putin and ISIS and Biden and Congress are not in charge. And yet, while we watch the news, we wring our hands with anxiety and fear and anger that somehow our lives will come crashing down and all will be lost. How could we forget that the crucified king has ascended to the throne of God? I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, look, this is rhetoric. You haven't answered the toughest questions. Prove it. Prove that Jesus is king. I mean, I'm looking at my life and this city, not to mention Buffalo, New York. You may have seen the news. 
Ukraine, the world, it doesn't appear to me he's in charge of anything. I know. I feel that too. And the truth is, I'm not sure I can offer you the proof you're looking for. Understanding what it means to live in God's kingdom requires that you step into God's kingdom and you live in it with gusto. Next week, my family and I will travel to the East Coast for my nephew's wedding. During that ceremony, he and his fiance will stand there and make vows while the rest of us think about the food that we're going to eat as soon as this long-winded preacher finishes, honestly. During that time, they'll say to each other, no matter what happens, come what may, sickness, health, poverty, riches, great joy or overwhelming sorrow, I will love you. And we might respond to them in that moment, prove it. And the only way to know for sure that they're telling the truth, that they both mean it, is that they live in that story for the rest of their lives. And Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. That's it. All authority. Everything. He doesn't dole out any of that authority to the kingdoms of this world. Only to his own children. All authority is given to me. I'm the ascended king. I don't offer you all the answers. But I do offer you my power and my life and a future that you'd be crazy to reject. And my friend, live in this story. And if you do, no, your questions will not be fully answered, but the unsettledness that you feel will begin to fade because in resurrection and ascension, fear gets driven out by love. Life will begin to take on a depth of meaning, even while being fully aware of our own sins and the church's sins and the tragedy of the world around us. Yes, all that is true. But that's no reason to abandon Jesus because it's why, it's the very reason why we tenaciously hold to resurrection and ascension of the God-man. Where else will we go? Ourselves? Our careers? Our political movements? Only the ascended king, only the ascended Lord is king. And only a king like Jesus is worth the full devotion of our lives. Thanks be to God. Amen.